All right. Cool. Well, hey, everybody was mostly on time today, so I take it you all remembered to set your clocks back 45 minutes so that so that you would be on time. Um, you know, have have some grace for me today because no one told the baby that we got an extra hour of sleep. She was unaware, so she was up, you know, and ready to go. So, you know, it's it's nice. It's good. She's she's cute. She's lucky. She's cute. Um, well, welcome, welcome to the final week of our series, Love One Another. Um, for the last five weeks, we have been talking about what it means to follow Jesus with respect to our relationships. And so we've talked about all sorts of different things. We've talked about uh, character, we've talked about building healthy connection, communication, managing conflict, we've talked about peacemaking. And I'll be honest, as I prepared for this morning, I kind of had a question, like, rattling around in my brain. And the question is, like, this is all nice, all this talk about relationships and doing it, this is nice, but what are we supposed to do about it now? You know, because when we get into these teaching series that are, like, kind of topical and, and you know, they're, they're advice for wise living and it's good stuff, but it's really easy to take five or six weeks of teaching like this, and then just kind of move on. You know, we thought about that for a few weeks, and so now we don't have to worry about it anymore. And so I've been asking, you know, healthy relationships for what? Is kind of the question that I've been thinking about this week. Why, why would we care? Why, why, why does it matter? You know, are we talking about healthy relationships to make our lives easier? Are we talking about healthy relationships to be nicer, more moral people and just be more pleasant in general? Are we talking about healthy relationships to please and appease people who think differently from us and keep from offending them? Are we talking about healthy relationships like to keep from hurting people? Why? Why are we talking about this? And um, I'm going to come back to this question, but you know the truth is, Doing the work that we're doing right now, being together in this room, doing church, gathering people together to, to worship and to turn our attention to God and think about these things together, it's hard work. And it's different work from the way it was 25, 30, 40 years ago. You know, I was talking with an older church planter who's in his 70s recently, and he was telling me, you know, Parker... In the 70s, back in the 70s, when we started planting churches, um, it was a strange time. Like, God was doing something really unique in that time, and we could just put a sign in the yard that said, prayer meeting Tuesday. And then, like, 15 or 20 people would show up that we'd never met before. And it's not really like that anymore. It's actually kind of like pulling teeth to get people to come to church. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I've noticed that. And my prayer right now is that we would come to a place in culture where we're hungry like that again someday. But um, in the meantime, here's what I think. There is so much darkness in every area of life, in every like sector of society 
And there are some things 30 or 40 years ago that were kind of like givens. Like they were just things that you could count on. You know, people had a little bit of knowledge about the Bible and then they thought it was true. And people generally, you know, even if they didn't know much about Jesus, they thought, well, Jesus, he was a good, trustworthy guy. Like there's a reason to listen to him. And little by little, you know, those things have been chopped away to the point where that is not the world that we currently live in. There isn't a general assumption that we should trust what Jesus has to say. And there isn't uh, this thinking that, you know, the Bible is true and good and, and we should take it seriously. And so I can't use the Bible to talk directly to my peers about spiritual things because what's the Bible? Why should I trust that book? And I can't appeal to Jesus as, you know, this moral authority that we should just automatically trust because who's Jesus? How do I know that I should trust Jesus and listen to what he has to say? And if you're thinking I'm complaining, hold your horses. Because what I actually believe is I believe that all this means that the church has an opportunity to stop talking and start doing the things that we've been talking about for the last few hundred years. Because now the message doesn't matter as much as our actions. And we've kind of gotten ourselves into this place. The church has kind of gotten itself into this situation because we did a lot of talking for a really long time and not really enough doing. You know, in, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, whoever hears the words that I'm speaking and does them will be like the person who built their house on the rock. And so what it comes down to is that, yes, we are saved by faith, we're saved by grace, we're not saved by works. However, the quality of our faith calls for work. And so, you know, we have this opportunity to win people to Jesus by what we do. By what we do. Because what we do makes the character of God evident to people. And so, you know, we can be hands-on, caring, forgiving, giving grace, listening, befriending, praying for the sick, restoring sight to the blind, raising the dead, just doing it. And Christian radio and slick apologetics, they're not making disciples of the next generation. I don't know if you've noticed, but what's making disciples of the next generation is doing the work that Jesus does. There's this thing called cessationism where people don't believe in the works of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit actually still does the things that he did in the Bible. And cessationism is going away. It's actually going away. Like, churches that still exist right now are not really cessationist churches anymore. There are still a few that are holding on. But people are waking up to the fact that doing the work that Jesus did is the thing that's relevant in the world that we live in today. And it's not a slick argument, and it's not persuasive words. It's the power of the Holy Spirit.
And so what if the church was known for serving people? Now, before I say this, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the church doesn't currently serve people. I know that there are incredible churches and Christian parachurch organizations and NGOs that do this work. They're doing this. But what if the church was known in culture for serving people? And, you know, the Muslims do this and the Buddhists do that, but Christians, they, they rebuild houses after floods. And they care for the homeless and help them recover. And they support single mothers and they support foster care families. Um, that is shining your light. And, and, and so that's the answer to this question. That our question here that we're asking is, you know, conflict management for what? Healthy relationships for what? You know, building healthy connection for what? Why? This series that we're, that we're finishing up today is called Love One Another. A new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So showing Jesus is why. Why healthy relationships? To put Jesus on display with love and power everywhere we go. That's the reason. It's not to help us be better, more moral people. It's not to help us be more agreeable in society. It's not, all those things are, are good. They're, they're fine byproducts of doing this work of having healthy relationships. But the reason that we pursue healthy relationships is to put Jesus on display with love and power before the Oxford community. That's our mission statement as a church. Well, that's not verbatim our mission statement as a church, but that's our mission statement as a church. That's why we gather here. That's what we're doing together. And so to conclude this series, about loving one another, that's where we're going to turn our attention today. We're going to turn our attention toward the work of compassion in our lives, in our relationships, and in our community. So today's scripture comes from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, you can follow along. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. And so we, we come on the scene here, and Jesus is doing dynamic, powerful kingdom ministry. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, this passage is often talked about in the context of evangelism, right? So a lot of times what preachers will do is they'll take this passage and they'll say, look, see, Jesus, you know, his desire was that workers would be sent out into the harvest. And so we automatically think that what the harvest means is, is like a harvest of souls, right? And it's people getting saved and coming into the kingdom. Now, I think that's like our job, right? That's very important. But if we, if we really look at what's happening here in this story, the harvest has to do with more than just making converts. So it says that Jesus had compassion on them. So he saw these crowds, he saw these people, they were harassed and helpless, it says, like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. And our English word compassion, you've probably heard this before, it comes from two separate Latin words, 
the, the Latin word com, which means with, and passus, which means suffering. And so literally, the word compassion that we have right here in this text means to suffer alongside. To suffer alongside. So Jesus saw the crowds. He saw that they were harassed and helpless, and he chose to suffer alongside them. That's really interesting because we could read this passage and we could think that it's talking about something like pity, where Jesus saw the crowds and he felt bad for them. Or Jesus saw the crowds and he even like felt what they were feeling. But the truth is that Jesus saw the crowds and he entered into their suffering. He actually participated in their suffering with them. Do you see how that's different? Do you see how that's maybe more relevant to the kind of work that we're called to do as followers of Jesus? And so the thing that makes the gospel, the good news of Jesus, unique and compelling is, is really the compassion, the co-suffering love of the Father that is put on display through Christ. See, the thing that separates the story of the people of God from every other story, from every other religious canon, from every other religious book, is the fact that the story of the people of God that's told in the Bible is the story of God coming to people. It's the story of God coming to us. He, he gets off his throne and he comes down here, and he does something about it. And, you know, every other story that's offered to us in, in alternative spirituality and in other religions, and really even in, like, atheism and agnosticism, is about us finding it for ourselves, whatever it is. Finding spiritual fulfillment, finding morality, finding a connection to God. But it's all about people having to figure it out on their own. And the thing that makes the story of the Bible unique is that God does it himself. God comes to us in Christ in the story of the scriptures. And, and so the fact that God decided not only to work to heal humanity, but in the meantime to actually enter in as a human and suffer and experience human brokenness is the very definition of compassion, and we can't find it anywhere else. That's true compassion. That's true co-suffering love. And friends, some of you have been told in the past that God despises you. And if it weren't for his son, you'd have been smote long ago. But the truth is that the compassion of Christ puts the love of the Father on display. And God is coming into your life to do something about the ways that you are experiencing suffering. God is coming into your life to do something about the ways that you are experiencing suffering right now. And of course he wants to fix it. Of course he wants to fix it. Of course he wants to heal your broken heart. Of course he wants to heal your broken body. But first he enters in and experiences with you. That is the powerful revelation of the person of Jesus. And as I studied this text this week, there were two things that, that really profoundly stood out to me. Um, and, and they have to do with the fact that when we read this story, we need to understand ourselves as two different people 
in the story. We need to understand that we are represented both by the harassed and helpless people, and we're also represented by the disciples of Jesus and in this story. And, and it's both and at the same time. It's not that you're one or the other. We are all both. And, and so first, I just want to say that, you know, to the, I, I want to say a few words to those of us who want to help. And, and when I talk about compassion and when I talk about the work, the work of, you know, being with homeless people and being with sick people and being with single mothers and being with orphans, something comes alive inside of you. When we talk about that, you recognize that God has put that inside of me and that is my portion in this life. I want to talk to you for a moment. Um, Jesus sees all this happening in this story. He, he sees all these people with their ailments and their, their wrong thinking and their bad worldviews and their hurting bodies and, and, and all these people, all this mess, and the first thing he does is he leans in and helps. Right? Because the first thing that this story tells us about Jesus is that he was going around, he was proclaiming the kingdom, and he was healing people. So that's the very first thing he does. Um, but then what happens after that is interesting because it kind of breaks our mold for the way that we often think about helping. Um, the text says that Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. This is happening, and, and Jesus turns to his guys. The disciples are right there. This is who he's talking to. And he says, um, guys, we're going to need a lot of help. This is Jesus. This is God incarnate looks at the devastation that humanity is experiencing and he turns to his guys and he says guys we're going to need a lot of help that's what he says and 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 so he says uh pray that god would send help and these guys are probably like but what aren't you god like what you know uh, what like what are you talking about? It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We're going to need help. The harvest, yes, is a harvest of souls. Yes, is people coming to know Jesus. But the harvest, more broadly speaking, is, is the devastation and the negative effects of the kingdom of darkness on the people that Jesus was looking at. He's recognizing their pain and their brokenness. And he's saying, the harvest is plentiful. Meaning, we have deeper work here to do than just making converts. The Pharisees make converts. But we've got more important work to do. And so then he says, therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. So he sees this pain, he sees this devastation, and he says, pray that God would send help. You know, where, where compassion comes from is, is kind of complicated. We get a little worried about our motives when it comes to compassion work. I read some interesting studies um, from a, a professor from MIT this week, and it's interesting. They, what they uncovered in these human behavioral studies is that human beings' first instinct is to compassion. It's actually to help when they see pain and when they see hurting. And the number one obstacle to acting on that impulse to help is how we will be perceived by others. 
And so when people see pain in the world and they get concerned about it and they think that they need to act, they're often stopped by the fact that they think, well, maybe John's going to think that I'm just trying to be like altruistic and kind of high and mighty and, you know, high-minded about what I have to offer the world. Or maybe my neighbors are going to see that and they're going to think, oh, like, why are they bringing those people around? Or maybe the people from my church, they'll see me doing this work and they'll say, oh, like, why is he working with LGBTQ youth? You know, why, why would you do that? You know, what, what, what kind of people are you associating with? We get wrapped up in the way that people perceive the kind of work that we're trying to do. And, and really what this means is that we need to understand the difference between having an ulterior motive and an ultimate motive. If you were with us for the Art of Neighboring series, Jay Pathak wrote an excellent uh, chapter in that book, The Art of Neighboring, about the difference between having an ulterior motive and an ultimate motive. And an ulterior motive is, is a hidden motive for helping. It's one where your, your goal is concealed. And ultimately, what you're doing by helping is trying to manipulate people into making a decision or acting a certain way. Or maybe you're even just in it for like some affirmation. And this can start really innocently, but you know, maybe it's just, I, I just want to feel appreciated for doing something kind. And when we're clear on our ultimate motive to reveal Christ, one, we're transparent about that. We're transparent about why we're just going out and raking people's lawns on a Sunday afternoon. Because we're not pretending that it's for some reason other than God loves you. And we just love to do simple acts of kindness that put God's love on display for people. We're not trying to coerce people. We're not trying to keep something concealed or keep something hidden. And the fact that we're open and honest about that is actually powerful and, and people connect with that. A great example of this is, is the story about Jesus and the 10 lepers. Do you guys know this one? So in Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals 10 men with a skin condition. Now, why did Jesus do miracles? Jesus did miracles to put the love of the Father on display so that people would see the power of the kingdom of God coming into contact with, with the earth, with their bodies, with their lives. And so he heals these 10 men with a skin condition, and he tells them to go away, go to the priests, and, and show themselves as healed, and then they would be declared clean by the priests. And so the 10 go away, they go to the priests, and only one of them comes back to thank Jesus for healing him and, and to praise God and to acknowledge, you know, what had happened. But you know what's interesting to me about that story? It doesn't say that Jesus unhealed the other nine. Jesus healed, helped, prophesied, revealed the kingdom of God to, you could argue, hundreds of people who decided not to follow him in the New Testament. You realize that Jesus wasn't batting 100%. The rich young ruler, Jesus tells him exactly what he needs to do to enter into the kingdom of God. And what does he do? He leaves sad and dejected. And it says Jesus loved him. But that guy didn't do what he needed to do to follow Jesus. So when our ultimate motive is to reveal the love of the Father to the people around us, we find that we actually don't get offended when it doesn't work. And we don't get insecure when we don't see the result that we were hoping for. And we don't have to get 
angry with people when they don't give us the response we were hoping for. And we don't have to get hurt when we don't receive the appreciation that we think we deserve for doing something kind. Because we understand our ultimate motive in being compassionate toward people. It's to show what God does. He enters into their pain and suffering, experiences it with them, and, 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 and works to deliver them from it. You know, the reason that I need to spend time with folks who are not experiencing life the same way I am is because I want to put God's love on display, but it's also because of me. And I don't think we should be afraid of that motive. I don't think we should be afraid of that motive because I live in a bubble, and I suspect I'm not the only one in this room. You know, I... Um, I live in a nice townhouse, and the rent is a little higher than I would like, but, um, you know, I have two cars and health insurance. And the biggest problem that I have regarding food is that I eat too much of it. And um, I have heat in my home, and I go on vacation. And so it's good for my soul to be with people who are regularly experiencing extreme needs. Not because it reminds me of what I have, because that's what I was taught growing up. That, you know, serving the poor, being with people who aren't like you, it gives you a, a greater appreciation for what you have. That's not the reason. The reason is because it reminds me of what I do not have. I do not have the ability to understand the hell that they live in unless I do the work to get close to them. I do not have enough skill, time, energy, attention, or money to fix the problem. I don't. I do not have the spiritual wisdom or the supernatural power to zap people out of adversity. And so doing this work of being near to people who are experiencing extreme need, um, it, it really, what it is, is it's, it's an invitation to say to ourselves, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. So Lord of the harvest, would you send workers into this harvest? And the interesting thing about what happens after Jesus says that, because the chapters in the Bible are arbitrary. They were put in later by, you know, they don't really mean anything. The very next thing that happens, do you know what it is? Jesus calls the 12 to this work. So, so he tells them, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into the harvest. And then the next thing he says is, get busy. And that's a challenge to us, to hold intention, the intercession for the needs that we see around us, and getting busy. Because what we see from Jesus in this passage is a direct call to do both. And so, you know, my, my invitation to you right now is that if you're the kind of person that says, oh, I'm an intercessor, I'm not much of an activist, you know, I will absolutely pray. Jesus says, Get to work. He's calling you to himself, and he's sending you into the harvest. And if you're more of an activist and you're thinking, you know, well, I, like, I would rather just get out there and, and, you know, put my hand to the plow and make a difference. Well, Jesus' first invitation to you 
is to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into the harvest because you can't do it. You actually don't have enough to do it yourself. You don't have enough skills. You don't have enough time, energy, attention, money. You don't have enough of those things to do it on your own. And that's why it's crucial to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into the harvest. Then the second thing that stood out to me about what this text has to say is to those of us who are feeling harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd right now. And, of course, I named some pretty serious material adversity, but you don't have to be materially poor to be harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Um, You know, in this story, Jesus becomes a conduit for the kindness of God toward the people that he's ministering to. And he's a conduit to, to the disciples who are tired and the crowd has overwhelming needs. And if you read this whole story, there's a lot going on. And, and his guys are kind of like, man, Jesus, we're exhausted. Like, how are we going to do all this? And, and it's even more pronounced when the story appears in the Gospel of Mark. So if you want extra credit, you can go and read um, this story in, in the Gospel of Mark and you'll see that, that it's really clear that there's a lot going on and these guys are exhausted. And, you know, this story, it contains some allusions to Psalm 23. It's the best loved of all the Psalms. It's actually the most popular scripture in the entire Bible. Over and above John 3.16, Psalm 23 is quoted uh, more frequently, you know, anywhere in the world, certainly on the Internet, um, than, than any other specific scripture. And it's the one that begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so who is Jesus? Verse 34 said, Jesus has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus came to be the shepherd of all humankind. First he came to the lost sheep of Israel, it says, and then ultimately the mission of Christ is to all people. And it's a, it's a very intimate and personal metaphor for the care and the provision and the protection and the guidance that the Lord gives to people who turn to him in faith. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And so Christianity is not a religion, it's not a philosophy, it's not a system of thinking, and it's not just a book. It is a relationship. And, you know, I know that we have beat that to death, and it might sound a little cliche, but the truth is that It is a relationship between an individual and Jesus who is alive. And so I want to just quickly turn to some family business because we are a small church. We can recognize that, right? We're in a fairly small room. And something that's been standing out to me as a pastor for some time is just this idea of calling people to Christ in our preaching. I think it's of crucial importance that, you know, we understand that the good news of Jesus is not actually preached unless we give people an opportunity to respond to it. And reflecting on my own life, I grew up in a church. I grew up in church every Sunday, all through my teenage years. And I cannot remember a single time where the pastor or the preacher gave an opportunity to 
give my life to Jesus and, and choose to make Jesus the Lord of my life. And so our regular teachers, our teaching team, we have made an agreement together. We, we've made a, a covenant, so to speak, that every time we preach, we are going to um, present the opportunity to make Jesus Lord of your life and give people the opportunity to respond. And so because we're a small church, let me just say a few things about what that means. What that means is that sometimes you're going to know everybody that's in this room. And you're going to know that they already followed Jesus. You're going to know that they've been following Jesus for decades. And so in that case, what we're going to do is we're going to present the good news and we're going to give people an opportunity to respond and give their lives to Christ. And there's going to be an empty chair. And we're all going to know in our knower that that empty chair is there because none of us have put somebody in that empty chair to hear this for the first time. And so what I want to say about that is, you know, if you're a little nervous about sharing your faith, if that's something that's uncomfortable for you, or if that's just not something that you've even experimented with at all, two things. One, we are committing to model that week in and week out from right here. Every single week, you're going to hear it done. And two, if you're not very confident about that, but you know somebody that needs to hear that, you can bet that if you put them in that chair, they're going to hear it on Sunday. So the compassion of Christ comes to us in our circumstances. And what I want to say right now is that he is coming to you in your 80-hour weeks at work. He is coming to you in your bad marriage. He is coming to you in the meaningless, hopeless feeling that retirement has given you. He's coming to you when you are in financial struggle. And he's not waiting for you to figure it out. He wants to touch your life with the co-suffering love that we just talked about, with the compassion that we just talked about. Jesus wants to get involved in what you have going on. And so if you're hearing this and you're thinking, you know, I'm trying to be a compassionate person, but I'm not really having much success. Or you're thinking, you know, I, I want to have a life with God, but I'm not even sure where to start. You're going to have an opportunity to respond to that in just a minute. So I want to invite the worship team to come on back up as we, uh, as we finish the message here. Um, you know, compassion is messy. Getting involved with what's going on in the world around us is messy. And that's why we talked about having healthy relationships for five weeks. Because if we have any thought of getting involved in the kind of co-suffering love that Jesus talks to us about, we need to have healthy relationships. We need to be able to connect with people in a healthy way. We need to be able to manage conflict. And, and it's not unto just being a better person. It's unto fulfilling the mission of revealing Jesus to the world around us. Because they will know that we are his followers by our love for one another. And so I want to invite you all to stand, if you're able. And uh, prayer team, you can make your way to the back. You know, Jesus, in the Gospels, as he went around, he consistently preached what we call the gospel of the kingdom. He consistently preached that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that means that God and God's activity in your life is close enough to touch. That's actually what he's saying. He's saying that it's close enough to touch. 
And, and so he has come to bring you peace and to bind up your broken heart and to free you from darkness in your life. And so if you have never made the decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, and you're hearing this right now, and you're saying to yourself, you know what, that's, that's, that might be for me today. That's something I'd like to do. Um, I want to invite you to make your way to, to the folks who are available in the back to pray right now. Um, because that is the most, decision, most important decision you'll ever make. And we would love to pray with you. And so, um, having said that, we're going to conclude the message with communion today because communion is decidedly one of the most important practices when it comes to making our hearts tender to the people around us and to the work that Jesus did for us. And so there are tables up here um, at the front of the room. And so at any point during worship, we want to invite you to come up and to receive the elements. And so I'll, I'll say a few words about that here. Uh, and then we'll worship together.